Hi there, Bill. Thanks for joining me today. How are you feeling? Robin, good to see you as always. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. It's been a very weird week in the world of security with lots of things that have happened and people have got quite scared. There's been securities and floors and sometimes people have just left open doors. So hopefully here you can educate us. You can tell us all about what's happened in the world of IT and more importantly, tell us how Cato has protected us throughout all of it. More than happy to do that, Robin. So let's move on to the first topic. Mirai, out to get the Internet of Things. Now, I understand the Mirai malware has turned some Linux devices and into bots on a botnet, but tell us some more. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, this is a really interesting one, Robin, because Mirai has existed for quite some time. Uh, in fact, this typically came to light around 2016, 2017, and you're absolutely right. It really is centered around Linux devices and particularly IoT devices. So we're talking things such as uh, IP cameras or routers. And we continue to see that as one of the top 10 hits in terms of the malware that's circulating uh, out in the uh, the cyberspace. Mm-hmm. So what does it do? Can I, I pretend so, I'm an idiot. I have no idea what this is. Why should I care about it? What threat does it bring to my network? Why should I care? Yeah, happy to tell you. So <laughs> the way Mirai essentially works is that it combs through and looking for Internet of Things devices. Once it finds those, Mirai actually has a set of default passwords that vendors typically put in these devices. So once it does discover one of those devices, it essentially begins a brute force attack, trying to utilize those vendor credentials. And once it's able to gain access, it will install itself on that device and essentially check in with a command and control server, a C2 server, to see when it's time to actually execute uh, against the orders that may be given centrally. Now, the the number one use for this is for distributed denial of service attacks. And this is absolutely what we've seen, not only in the original Mirai, but in the variants that have come since then. It sounds pretty dangerous. And you mentioned that you've seen it as a top 10 threat. What, what does top 10 mean? Is that OWASP top 10 or is that Kato top 10? So it, it is indeed Kato top 10. So utilizing the threat analytics that we deploy, we're able to see what kinds of traffic uh, from a malware perspective are circulating. And this is a big one. Even though this has been out for quite some time, it really is pervasive. And as I just shared a moment ago, there are a lot of variants that exist out there. Our next generation anti-malware solution does detect that and is able to block that payload before it's able to be installed. Okay, so is that north-south or is it also lateral east-west? Because you know, it really I... can... Oh, after you, after you. No, it, it, it really can be both, uh, both north-south and east-west. Uh, we are able to capture that, and that, that's extremely important that we be able to capture not only the north-south, which you would expect, but the east-west mm-hmm. traffic as well. Uh, certainly these things can be inadvertently installed, and we want to stop the spread of that uh, before it infects further. That's a big problem, big problem. Now, the Internet of Things is expanding and growing. Think of how many devices are on your home network with an IP address, whether it be coffee pots, fridges, iPads, or whatever else you have laying around. Myself, I have 20 Raspberry Pis all sat there doing various bits. So if you're not connected to a corporate network, you have a very large attack surface, especially when it comes to drive-by attacks or somebody deciding that they just want to get some form of pirated content because they're not fully aware of the law. It's very easy for infections to happen. So in the event that Mirai is actually on one of your devices, what do? How protect? 
you know, it's, it's such a great question. And we do tend to think of this in a, a kind of a corporate framework. But we have to remember that, you know, with COVID-19 really driving us toward a new model of work, uh, this the home actually has a direct impact on that. And utilizing Cato Network Software Defined Perimeter, we're actually able to protect against that injecting into the corporate world. So we're able to keep things safe from a corporate perspective, but even in the home footprint, which is so critically important because the old castle and moat uh, approach to cybersecurity really doesn't play anymore with the, the mobility and the, the remote workforce. So you're saying I should throw away my chain mail? <laughs> well, you certainly can do that. It looks fantastic on camera. <laughs> Maybe one for next time. So Mirai is out there. It's been around for a while and has no signs of disappearing anytime soon. So the important thing here is that Cato protects your edge. We protect against lateral attacks. We, we protect against horizontal attacks. And we also start protecting at the edge to ensure that you have full protection against this. Now, it doesn't resolve the issue at its core. Devices will still be vulnerable, but Cato will help mitigate the Mirai vulnerability and generally allow you to relax and trust your branch offices of one, otherwise known as home workers. That's all good. It's very exciting. So yeah, and you really said something important there, Robin, and I, I want to make sure we don't go past it too quickly. The key to Mirai is that it is using default passwords. We can't eliminate the human element. So make sure <laughs> if you're using those IoT devices, change those default passwords. I've seen the matrix enough to know that trying to eliminate humans is a very, very laborious process and we'll never get there. And if we do, then everything will be very smooth and it'll work well like butter. But until sure. then, people will always get in the way. Now, talking about people getting in the way, let's move on to our second item, Locker Goga. Now, people often fall for ransomware, and LockerGoga is a nice ransomware that has gone out. It's encrypted lots of people's environments. Ransomware is dangerous, but it's been unlocked. Tell us a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, LockerGoga was a pretty significant ransomware attack. Uh, estimates are somewhere around uh, 1,800 people and institutions across 71 countries that uh, fell victim to to this ransomware. And the key thing about ransomware, and, and we sort of alluded it just now when we talked about Mirai, is that ransomware is insidious in that it loves to move laterally. In fact, you need to do that um, from a ransomware perspective. Now, LockerGoga has, uh, has long uh, tapered off. It, it, we really don't see it in the wild too much more. But very interestingly, uh, the, the Romanian cybersecurity company Bitdefender has continued its work on LockerGoga and was actually able to unlock it by finding uh, the private keys that uh, are able to unlock that. Now, we don't know exactly where they were found. We suspect it was from the threat actors that were uh, apprehended, and we were able to uh, get a hold of the privacy keys. But again, uh, this is close to a year after we've seen LockerGoga out in the wild and really what we're getting at here is for those organizations that did maintain that encrypted data from a ransomware perspective, they're at least now able to uh, unlock it with some caveats put in place. See, I like the way you said that it's been a year, but they continue with the research. Because remember, when people attack the network, quite often ransomware will sit on devices for days, months, or even years before people actually execute it. As you're gathering more data points, you're scanning the network, you're understanding what are the holes because from an attacker's perspective, 
the bigger the attack, the bigger the payout, the bigger the payday. So even though it's a relatively old attack, it's still very prevalent across the world. I mean, last time I yeah. saw it was like 71 countries that we've identified it in, and that is a very wide surface attack. And that's only countries we know about and only issues. So that, that well said, you know, and, and the key thing to remember about ransomware, especially ransomware like Locker Goga, is we don't know if it could still potentially be embedded elsewhere, right? One of the things mm -hmm. that's very common with ransomware is to pair it up with, uh, with what we refer to as a logic bomb, which means that at any point that could execute. The good news is rather than simply following the news and looking at the latest greatest, and that, that sometimes is a, a, a difficulty that we struggle with in cybersecurity, we're always looking at the new thing. The bottom line is that research needs to continue on, on these pieces that we may have seen for quite a while, understanding that at any point a variant or, or a logic bomb could trip one of these and we could find ourselves right back in the same place. Mm -hmm. There's the visibility of old architecture. I mean, I bet a bunch of our listeners have Windows XP still running somewhere or Vista. It, it exists. The reality is some legacy systems can't be updated, so they have to stick with a certain version. But when it comes Absolutely. to these logic bomb-based malware, ransomware, rootkits, worms, they're quite invisible. Unless you have a tool actively protecting you, actively engaging and scanning for this, you're just sat there merrily one way until you get a nice Monday morning call that nobody can access the AD servers, all of your systems are down, and you have a nice $10 million Bitcoin bill in front of you. Not, not you, Bill. Sorry, you're, you're worth more than $10 million, but we're going that way. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate yeah, so, that. If I have Lockagoga somewhere on the network, I have ransomware on the network, how does Cato protect us there? So again, we are looking at that, that data as it moves in your network. Uh, East-West traffic is, is probably one of the most interesting things to watch when you're looking at something like ransomware, particularly because, and not necessarily in the case of Lockagoga, but ransomware can actually be what we often refer to as living off the land. We can utilize native operating system uh, tools to be able to do this. So being able to analyze that kind of traffic, that east-west traffic, and, and understand that you know something doesn't look right within the environment, uh, looking at it from a heuristic standpoint rather than a signature-based standpoint, that is so critical to being able to identify that, especially when ransomware is so often brought into the environment by unsuspecting users. So we really need to be able to keep an eye on that. And again, Cato Network's watching that east-west as well as that north-south traffic. Using a heuristic approach, we're able to identify that that is actually taking place and we can alert before the ransomware actually triggers. Now, of course, there are other mitiga mitigation strategies as well that may go outside of that. The great news is that because of the nature of the Cato Network service, we enable the human being to look at these things and to be able to develop innovative ways to identify and contain or eliminate threats. What I hear a lot from other vendors is that a ransomware would appear and they would say, oh, if you had our product, we would have protected you. And sometimes that's true. But generally right. other vendors sell point products. They'll say, oh, we have an anti-malware engine. Great. We have an endpoint protection agent. Great. We would have, and it goes on and on and on. But the reality is every form of ransomware attack isn't just one incident. It's generally a cyber attack chain, whether it be a user accessing a bad website, a malicious web, a download of a payload, it's an execution of a payload, a command and control server talking to, there's multiple facets. So whenever you're looking at protecting or mitigating a potential ransomware attack, 
you have to look at the entire chain. So ideally a converged solution, you know, something like Cato, and just saying if you're an existing customer, congratulations. If not, we have fantastic security. That's how you need to start looking at things. You don't look at one aspect of your entire business supply chain and think, oh, I just need vans. You have to think of the factory, the production, how it gets shipped, how things get moved. And you should take the same approach with the overall security environment. You know, I love how you said that, Robin. Lockheed Martin came out with their cybersecurity kill chain very much based on uh, a military framework. And that cyber kill chain has continued to evolve and in, in our understanding of that. And, and what you said is absolutely key. It, it really cannot just simply come down to uh, putting a tool, a point product in place and then simply relaxing and figuring that everything is going to be okay. The solution that you deploy has to enable your ability to really think outside of this. And if there's, if there's one theme I hope that we're getting across today, it's the importance of the, the human element that, that's a part of that kill chain and, and really understanding what we can bring to the table because all of those other things that, that generate so much activity, they're, they're being covered by a, a truly converged solution. Absolutely. Just because you have your seatbelt on doesn't mean you can have the accelerator to the floor. You need to you look go. at the entire situation. So Absolutely. talking of potential car crashes, let's talk about the world of crypto. Ooh. Absolutely. Hopefully you don't have any Bored Ape NFTs or any NFTs at all. That market is terrible. But let's talk about XM Rig and money for sure. nothing. So what Absolutely. is XM Rig for those who are unfamiliar? Yeah, so XM Rig is an open source cryptocurrency miner. It it's, runs both on CPUs within your system as well as GPUs. In fact, I think anybody who's familiar with cryptocurrency knows that there are large farms of servers with multiple graphics cards that do nothing but cryptocurrency mining all day. In fact, I have a friend who, who works in that uh, industry, if you will, and he is literally compensated to be available all day to change out graphics cards when they burn out from doing cryptocurrency mining. But that's what XM Rig is. XM Rig is absolutely a, a legitimate tool. Uh, it's, it's, as I said, open source, so you can get on uh, GitHub and you can download it and you can utilize that in order to uh, do cryptocurrency mining. Where it gets interesting, Robin, is that, uh, you know, the, the, the bad actors know that too. And so with the temptation of all of this compute power that's available worldwide, we can literally take a, a good, honest tool like XMREG and we can embed that into a Trojan horse and get that into an environment so that although it may not be uh, causing damage within the environment, it's using the resources with the, within that environment to do that cryptocurrency mining and to bring it home. So mm -hmm. what we're actually looking at here is theft of resources. And typically speaking with XM Rig, what we see is that it gets embedded into uh, uh, what is supposedly an update. Uh, now get this, Robin, this is a funny one. Uh, an update to Adobe Flash Player. <gasps> that right still now. exists? It, it's so funny wow. enough. It, it, it was end of life. Uh, it, it should not exist. But the truth of the matter is there are an awful lot of organizations as you alluded to earlier, that have built things on Adobe Flash. And so they still need it. And because of the relative familiarity that people have with Adobe Flash Player, they figure that everything is safe. That is typically how XMRig will get embedded. They will bring it in as a Trojan horse. XMRig will begin to do its magic and send the mined cryptocurrency home. Mm -hmm. 
which can be a challenge, especially if you live in a country where crypto mining is prohibited by law. Exactly right. Big chance. Exactly. There's a way around it, and uh, there you have uh, it. I like how you talked about theft of resources. That's a good approach. Now, if you're sat there with your 4090 RTX GPU, which now costs $1,600 compared to the scalped prices we saw last year, it was a bit wild. But imagine you have a powerful rig, a powerful machine. You might not notice 10% of system resources being taken away. Okay, no big impact. However, if your AWS, your Linode, your Azure systems get impacted, which you're paying for the compute cycles, effectively you are paying money for other people to make more money which is a little bit dangerous and a little bit bit shaky the world of crypto is full of scammers it's full of hackers it's full of easy ways to make quick money and i'm not saying crypto is a scam but i'm saying breaches such as OpenSea, metamask wallets getting drained and much more it's far far too easy to fall into these scopes so if i'm a cato customer how does Cato protect against XM rig? Yeah. So again, we're talking about a legitimate application here. So mm-hmm. uh, we're not necessarily looking at a threat signature, but utilizing an effective intrusion prevention system or an intrusion detection system, we're able to see that traffic. We're able to see those characteristics and identify that that exists in the environment. Now, listen, this doesn't even have to take place via a Trojan horse. So if you think that the, the, the wise thing to do is to block Adobe Flash Player, right, to, to utilize the old castle and moat uh, approach to this, you're sorely mistaken. Because uh, unfortunately, there is a tremendous temptation with all of not only the on-premise resources, but all the cloud resources, that this could be very much an insider threat. You may have an individual within the organization that is utilizing a legitimate program to generate uh, you know, cryptocurrency, to mine for cryptocurrency for themselves. And it's very, very tempting to utilize those resources. What's the harm? But as you said, um, there, there absolutely uh, is harm. There's very fiscal, very real harm Uh, to that being utilized. So again, an effective intrusion prevention system identifies that traffic. It identifies that this is being perceived as an intrusion. This is not something that we want taking place. And we're able to identify that and block that. Yeah, The last time I was looking at the Cato data warehouse and identifying the applications traversing our backbone, there was a significant amount of crypto traffic being actively blocked across our global black backbone. So yeah, we are true. seeing Again, the data. Another top 10. Absolutely. Another, another top 10. Now, it might be a bit too late for the average Joe uh, to try and mine Bitcoin, but other smaller protocols like Shiba Inu or XRP, there's a lot more of a to-the-moon mentality there. So people think they can make an easy buck. So you might have your end users, your employees, feeling like they're doing something harmless. But... Right. If there's an issue, if there's a legal challenge, or if your country prohibits your workers using corporate resources for personal gain, you want to be able to visualize what's happening. So luckily, Cato can provide that visibility. That's now, right. on, the, on the topic of crypto, since we're working more forward, let's talk about winter mutes and the, yeah. cr- the recent hack of a crypto market maker with, what, $160 million of crypto exfiltrating into the ether. Tell me yeah, more. Yeah, absolutely true. What happened? Well, so th- this this was kind of a tricky one. So there, there's an interesting phenomenon that takes place. And, and unfortunately, Wintermute, I think, found themselves on the end of this, um, as you said, to the tune of, of north of 160 million U.S. dollars uh, exfiltrated. 
in that uh, as, as folks get more comfortable with the crypto market, um, as human beings do, they, they sort of like to put their, their mark on things. In this particular case, there is a, a tool that's available uh, called Profanity that allows users to generate vanity wallets, right? So rather than mm -hmm. just a, uh, a string of characters identifying their wallet, they're able to embed something into the name of that wallet that, that identifies them. Now, where the problem comes in is that users who utilize that uh, did not realize, and, and, and prior to this breach, about one week prior, it was identified that there was a problem with the private keys uh, generated by profanity. They were found to be vulnerable. So in this particular case, uh, Wintermute doing what they do as a part of their business model had users that had utilized these private keys. And unfortunately, that allowed the threat actors to get in and to exfiltrate uh, that, that cryptocurrency. So they didn't just hard code their private key somewhere for the world to see. Which I've, I know quite a few people do sometimes, especially when they're writing small scripts. Sure, sure. Yeah, not the case. Again, it was a weakness that was discovered one week before. And, you know, boy, that's, that's part of the struggle that we have in the cybersecurity world. Things change very, very quickly. And mm -hmm. if you are in the cryptocurrency world, uh, it behooves you to understand that. It behooves you to understand that uh, vulnerabilities exist. They are discovered all the time. And we probably need to keep an eye out for that and make sure that your cryptocurrency wallet is kept safe. And part of that is uh, sometimes making sure that our own human vanity uh, isn't opening the door for those threat actors. <laughs> oh, come on. Human vanity and flattery. Those are two of the biggest social barriers for every hacker to overcome. You know, the amount of social engineering attacks that has led to people moving up and forward is is ridiculous. And I know we'll discuss a little more about this uh, later in the, the podcast. Sure. But the importance of private keys. So just for those who may not be aware, I know we have quite a few listeners that might not be security experts. What is sure. a private key? Just give us a very brief overview. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, private keys and public keys are very important in terms of uh, actually encrypting data traffic. Let's keep it at the lowest level. Um, the, the average person who gets out on the internet and does their shopping uh, or does their banking, for example, all of those transactions run over public networks, which could potentially make them very visible. And so we utilize an encryption technique utilizing both private and public keys, public keys enabling us to encrypt traffic that's going out and private keys enabling us to decrypt traffic as it comes in. And in that whole scenario, public keys are obviously by its name available for the public to see that's to encrypt that traffic going out. But the interesting thing is that traffic cannot be decrypted unless you utilize your private key. And that is the key that is so critically important to protect. You never want your private key to fall in somebody else's hand. You know, there was a great saying once upon a time that three people can keep a secret as long as two of them are dead. And that really applies to private keys. That is something that has to be very strictly preserved. A compromise of a private key essentially breaks that entire system because if you have the private key, and the public key is already out there, you've now broken the system. You can now access things in an unauthorized fashion. And that's that's precisely what happened here. So somebody leaked the master key, it unlocked all the doors, and all of the treasure came flowing out into the pirate ships of abode. Whether leaked or cracked, absolutely. 
leaked or cracked. At the end of the day, the outcome is the same, whether it be legitimate or illegitimate. Every single person has a role to play in maintaining security, whether it be an organization or individually. Think of how many passwords that you personally have, Bill, for your myriad of websites. And you think, oh, it's fine. I've written them all down somewhere. It's safe. It's secure. Sure. But say if you use something like 1Password or a password manager vault and that gets hacked, then effectively there's problems that can be, be observed. So with that comes the importance of multi-factor, many factor authentication, not just two factor or three factor. This is the human element. This is the social aspect of ensuring you are who you say you are and you are legitimate, but people often get fatigued. I don't know how many times you have to sign, authenticate, get a text message or an SMS message, enter the code. People, well, humans kind of try to find the, the path of least resistance. But over the past few weeks, we've had an uber annoying security issue. So tell us a bit more, Bill. Yeah, you bet. So if if you're picking up a theme here, again, it's the importance of the human being, not only from the perspective of providing cybersecurity, but also from the perspective of the consumer, the user of technology. And indeed, in this case, we, we do have a human issue that took place. Now, I'm sure that everybody's pretty tired of hearing about the Uber breach, and we're, <laughs> we're probably not going to dig in uh, down that entire uh, path. But what I, th I find very interesting about this breach is that it really was a human situation, a type of social engineering. So in this case, we all know that credentials, uh, logins and passwords are, are often very easy to find or easy to crack. And because of that, a lot of organizations have implemented multi-factor authentication. In other words, there's a, there's a, there's a concept within cybersecurity that says that the, the most secure system is based upon something you know, something you have, and something that you are. Those are the typical multiple factors that we look at in trying to secure a system. Now there's others, and we can have discussions around that as well. But in this particular case, the way that this one worked is that the user's credentials were compromised. So login and password were already compromised. Thankfully, there was a multi-factor authentication piece in place. Now, that's a very fancy phrase, and let's explain it to those who, <laughs> who may not understand what that means. Typically, where the average user will see this, for example, is with their banking, where maybe they will log into their bank, and the bank says, please enter the code that we just sent uh, to your, your text message. And they'll key in a little number, and then that will actually that will actually authenticate them. You see that that second factor of authentication is really based upon something you have. A password is something that you know, but a second factor like text messaging is something that you have, right? You have a device in your hand and that way we know that it's you. In this particular case, the way that the compromise took place is that the credentials, the login and password were found. And so the threat actor kept attempting to log in, which kept sending a multi-factor authentication to the end user and they kept seeing it on their phone, right? Uh, please uh, authenticate this, is this you? No, 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 multiple times. Eventually the user simply got tired of having to deny that authentication over and over. And finally, just to shut it up, they hit yes. And of course, the moment they hit yes, the threat actor gained access and was able to do what they did. Now, we may use the example of Uber. This has happened multiple times in the recent past. Um, so it, it really is, uh, again, 
not so much a technology issue as it is a human issue. It is a social engineering issue. Just like dealing with children. Eventually, if they ask you for something so many times, it's easier to just cave in and say, yes, here you go, have the ice cream, be quiet, be quiet. But this well, is a much, bigger, <laughs> a much bigger level. Now, Absolutely. as you mentioned, we don't want to pick on Uber. This can happen to any organization, but Uber's currently in the news and getting a lot of, well, there's a lot of security engineer job postings recently from Uber. Right. So, hey, well, good. But effectively, we need to start looking at the role and the responsibility of the individual. You can That's have right. a myriad of security protections out there. You can have every security service under the sun in any specific way from any vendor. But if a user compromises that workflow, you're in trouble. This is That's when right. you need to start looking at adopting a full zero trust network access approach. So in the event that you do identify a compromise or a breach, you can isolate, you can segment, you can kick that user off the network, or you have visibility of what has been accessed from that terminal or from that device. But at the when all said and done, if you have people writing down passwords and they're sat in coffee shops or leaving devices unattended, there still is the human element. There still is the social threat. And hey, That's if right. you want to break into anywhere, just get a high visibility jacket, carry a ladder or a clipboard and walk with confidence, act like you belong and you can generally get in there. You know, since, right. co since COVID has happened, we've, the majority of the world have moved to a working from home environment. And for many people, this has led to their overall security consciousness diminishing substantially because they don't have to worry about who's peering into the windows using binoculars on a grassy knoll from 500 meters away because they're just right. sat in the living room, laptop on, on the lab and you know, typing away. So when it comes to these breaches, you have to remember of where you sit in the overall security element of the world. One user right. gets breached, theoretically, everything can get breached. That's right. That's right. And that's that you, you really hit the nail on the head when you talked about zero trust, right? So a zero trust framework is going to help identify that not only from, as you mentioned, from a segmentation perspective, uh, an authorization perspective, uh, as well as being able to identify the nature of the traffic that's happening. You know, the, the thing that I think folks forget about zero trust is that it's not a one and done. That's the old VPN way of doing things. Zero Trust is constantly monitoring from the perspective of making sure that what is taking place is, is authorized. But as you say so well, the key to it is the human being, you know, educating the human being that, that to, to where they get to a point where if they see something, they say something, right? Something is not right here. I need to understand if this is expected behavior before I just blindly accept what's being presented to me. And this holds true with things like, you know, phishing and email, as well as something like a multi-factor authentication. So really, education is absolutely key. You know, I had somebody actually ask me recently, you know, in, in light of this, what, what would you do in a situation like that? If your phone starts going off like crazy and, uh, and you're not sure why it's happening, what do you do? Well, the answer to that is you call your IT team, right? You call your security team. You utilize known pathways that have been established for you to alert those who are charged with watching over corporate assets or watching over, you know, whatever assets it may happen to be. That is the key. And you cannot reinforce that without education. If you haven't noticed here, the, Cybersecurity is, is it's such an interesting thing. It, 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 there's a lot of tools in cybersecurity, 
But psychology is very important in cybersecurity, and that's what social engineers will bank on. We have to take that same kind of approach. As a, as a converged solution, we provide the tool set that enables cybersecurity teams to, again, be able to, to start thinking in more advanced ways, start thinking about psychology, spend your time educating your teams, and then hopefully you can avoid some of these traps. Absolutely. If you're spending two weeks a month updating all of your firewalls and your VPN aggregators and your cloud gateways, you don't have the time to actually focus on the security. And anytime right. I talk to a security expert or a field engineer or even a network engineer and ask, why did you get into this pathway? Updates are never the answer. People want That's to right. focus on the principles and develop their own abilities. So as you mentioned, Cato provides that so you can focus on what truly matters and well, why you got into the industry. That's right. That's right. So thank you for your time today, Bill. It was a pleasure. And until next Likewise. time, have a great day. Absolutely.